I want to ask if you could, uh, if you're sitting on the edge of a row and uh, there's room in the middle, if you could slide in, that would be helpful as we've got a few people looking for seats. Thank you so much. Well, good morning again, and let's open our Bibles to John chapter 15. We're going to get to work right away um, because we've got a good bit to do this morning. Uh, We've been going through, I guess we're in week two of a series of eight weeks in John 15 alone. And the idea is to slow down the pace and to really dig in to the, the themes that are introduced to us and taught in this passage towards the end of Jesus' life. We looked at last week how Jesus lays out for His disciples what we call a profile of the disciple, the characteristics that, that should describe those who are passionately pursuing Christ. The characteristics like they abide in Christ. They obey His Word. They're connected to Him. Characteristics like they, they glorify the Father. They have a lifestyle of worship. They're joyful. They sacrificially love. And, and, and what we did last week was begin to look at this depiction from John 15 of, of what a, a passionate disciple of Christ looks like and compared that with where we all begin outside of Christ. And, and if you could find any more of a drastic picture, I would be surprised. Because on one end, you, you find this, this individual outside of Christ with no hope, spiritually dead, incapable of pleasing God, incapable of any kind of moral rightness at all. That, that we're all sinners by nature and choice and bent towards sin in ways we don't even understand yet. So much so that there's things about us that seem natural and normal to us that are sinful. Things so innate with us, they they seem to be identifiers of who we are and how we were created to be, that God proclaims to be sinful. And the work of the Holy Spirit through salvation and then this cleansing and maturing process is transforming our character so that those things are no longer true about us. And that's the wonderful hope that we saw in Scriptures like in 1 Corinthians where it says, look, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then this long list of, of dastardly sins, which honestly many of us have committed. And then at the end of that, he says, and some of you once were these, but you've been cleansed, you've been justified, you've been sanctified. And so that's the promise in front of us, is that God is not only willing to save and transform us, not only willing to forgive us from the penalty of our sin, but to cleanse us from its presence and deliver us from its power. He's willing and able. And so what has He commanded of us personally to do to pursue that? That's where we find ourselves in John 15 this morning. Our intention today is simply to lay out what resources God is making available to us in John 15. When we read this together, we're just going to look at verses 1-5 through this morning. Jesus, speaking to His disciples, says, I am the true vine, and My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in Me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, He prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, because you... Because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. 
Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I want to begin with what we believe to be the setting of this teaching. If you read the preceding chapters of John, you'll find that they've been in the upper room celebrating uh, the Last Supper where the Lord institutes the remembrance of the Lord's table or communion. Jesus had gathered His closest followers together this night before He was arrested where He would then go to the cross and He gives some final instructions to them. This is quite a significant time in the life and ministry of Jesus because what's about to happen is He's going to go to the cross and suffer the full weight of God's wrath for sin. He's going to then, on the third day, rise from the dead with victory over sin and death. He's going to then give some a few more instructions to His followers and then He's going to go to heaven to be with the Father. And He's going to leave the ministry and its fulfillment of its mission in the hands of these eleven men. That He's going to send the Holy Spirit to empower them and strengthen them and make this even possible. So these are in many ways His final instructions before He leaves. They've been in the upper room and they leave to go to the Mount of Olives to pray. The Garden of Gethsemane. They walk through the Kidron Valley, which is stained in blood because of its proximity to the temple and where they've been doing all the sacrifices with Passover coming. They go up the mountain the whole time in view of the temple. And there at the entrance to the temple, there's this massive, ornate, golden vine that that drapes the entry. The vine, in fact, for years had been the symbol of Israel as a national people. You'll find it on the backs of the coins that Israelite kings, the Maccabees, produced. The Star of David isn't introduced until around the 11th century as as a national symbol. So Jesus seizes an object lesson as they walk past the temple and it's gleaming gold vine. He says, Wait, I want you to understand something. I am the true vine and you are the branches. And if you abide in me, you'll bear fruit. And if you don't, you'll be a branch that withers and is cut off and thrown away. So he uses this moment as an object lesson and begins to teach them that it's normal for Jesus to use illustrations from agriculture. They're a farming community. So it's not abnormal. And he also seizes upon the immediate moment. And he starts with this simple analogy of a vine and branches. And he says, look, the the way branches at the end of the vine, the smaller little ends that produce the grapes, the way they work is they're connected to a central main vine. And that vine serves and supports the branch. And the branch alone, without the vine doing its part, can't accomplish anything. And if it's disconnected, it's withered and dead. And if it's not fruitful, then the vine dresser comes and prunes it. And so he introduces us to three characters. He says there's the vine, which Jesus identifies as himself. And then there's the branches, which he says that's that's his disciples, that's us. And the vine dresser, the one who plants and tends and cares for the vine, is his father. And in the story, he tells us a few things that we should understand that Jesus does for us as the vine. First is he grounds the branches. You see, the vine is where the root system is, and it's it's where foundation is, is created. So absent the vine doing its job properly, the branches have nothing to ground them and hold them in place. If the wind were to blow, they they would they would go with it. Not only does it ground, it sustains it. 
Right? It, it takes the nutrients from the soil, it funnels them up into the branches so that they can be fruitful, so that they can flourish. It supports them, it brings life and nourishment to the vine and to the branches. And it causes fruit to develop. The branch doesn't do much except kind of hang there unless the vine funnels resources, nutrients, and life into it. And so Jesus lays out this simple analogy for them. It's important to understand a few things just off initial observation here. There is no new life, there is no transformation, there is no fruitfulness apart from the vine. And this is helpful to understand our culture a little bit. It's also helpful to interact with maybe some friends and family who are not Christians. Do not expect them to behave as if they were saved. They're not. Expect people who don't have the Holy Spirit in them, transforming them, to act as if they don't have the Holy Spirit in them and transforming them. Right? We read this depiction of sinful man, which includes all of us, if left to our own devices, and it's bad, and it's not helpful, and it's exceedingly selfish, and don't be surprised if you find that. Now, we should be frustrated when we see that amongst those professing to be believers, but we're all sinful, and so there's correction, and there's grace extended and received, and there's the opportunity to move forward in faithfulness to Christ. But don't expect the non-believer to be transformed outside of Christ. I mean, surely they, they might overcome some things, but what you generally find is, is sin swapping. As we walk with a family member through the 12-step process, and as he went through drug recovery, I, I can tell you one of the things we learned there is it's very common for people not to get whole and well, but to swap addictions. And so someone might go into, into drug rehab uh, addicted to, to cocaine and they might come out hooked on, on nicotine and on control. So, so we haven't fixed a problem. We've exchanged one for another and it might be less socially devastating to be over controlling, but it's still an issue. That's the way we tend to operate outside of Christ. We experience victory over one destructive pattern of sin. We generally find us replacing another one. So there's not real transformation. I'd also say to the Christians, don't expect transformation outside of Christ. You will not grow into maturity and fruitfulness and completion on your own. You won't do this. You can't pull yourself up by your bootstraps and make yourself better. Jesus has got to do this for you. You've got to abide in Him. That's the central command, is to abide. Jesus doesn't tell the disciples, go be fruitful. He tells them, abide in Me and you'll be fruitful. The word abide is defined in Webster's Dictionary as to remain in a stable or fixed state or simply to wait. The Greek word translated there is menain, which means to wait or remain in a place, or to tarry. So that's the command. It's given as an imperative, right? You do this. Abide in me. Stay with me. It, it points to a relational intimacy. 
If we wanted to give maybe a, a theological definition of what we're talking about here when we say abide in Christ, it's the experience of maintaining a vital and intimate relationship with Christ, leading to spiritual life, growth, and fruitfulness. See, abiding speaks of our, of our closeness to Jesus. It's a relational condition. He says, stay in me. Stay. Wait here. It's interesting that the command, while while very direct to abide in Him, right? This is an active thing. But when you get down to it, He's saying, just stay with me. And what you get is the depiction that, that Jesus is going to do something in us and through us if we'll just stick with Him. If we'll just stay near to Him and close to Him and, and get in the, kind of the stream of the movement of His Spirit. That He begins to do things. He begins to work on us. And so the command for us is to stay. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul addresses this tendency that the church had to shift from pursuing cleansing and maturity in the Christian faith from spiritual means to their own power. And I love the way he begins this in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, that you are now being perfected by the flesh? I love the, the, the old Phillips paraphrase because he begins it like this. He says, Beloved idiots. He says, You foolish Galatians. Are you under some kind of spell? Did someone do something that just mystified you? Because now you think you're going to cleanse yourself? Like, you think you're good enough now? Like, you've been forgiven and now you've got the moral turpitude to make it right and once again please God? So the reality is you're bankrupt and all you have is what Jesus has given you. You're not going to make yourself clean. That's the whole point of the gospel, right? If we were capable of doing it, Jesus wouldn't send His only Son to die for us. So we're foolish, the Scripture says, if we think on our own we're going to mature us. That's why in Colossians 1, when Paul talks about his ministry in verse 29, he says, I labor and toil with all the energy that he so powerfully works within me. You see this? Paul says, I'm toiling, I'm struggling, but the energy is his, the strength is his, and it's his working within me. So everything I've got, the energy, the strength, the resources, the giftedness, whatever it is that I'm using to pursue faithfulness to Christ is given to me by God. So it's His work. And if that weren't clear enough, in John 15, 5, Jesus kind of ends this little sentence with this. Apart from me, you can do nothing. For those of us that are slow to pick things up in a little dense, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. Apart from Him, nothing. So that's what the vine and the branches do. The vine does all the work, and the branch gets to sit there and have grapes pop off. You just got to stay connected. But it's interesting that Jesus doesn't just say that He's the vine and we're the branches. He begins in verse 1 saying, I am the true vine. 
So, so that, that implies something. That there are potentially other vines. That there are other places that you could go to seek spiritual power. There are other places that you could run to seek transformation. But they're false. They're not helpful. The word used there to describe true is a Greek word, alethanos, which is actually the root of the word authentic in the English language. And it speaks of genuineness or authentic. See, in the Scriptures, there previously was a vine. Throughout the Old Testament, there's this, God tells the story of a vine. You can find it in Psalm 80 if you want to begin there. And it shows up about 17 or 18 times in the Old Testament. We'll just look at a few. Psalm chapter 80, verse 9. As they praise God for what He's done for Israel... He says, you cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Actually, let's go to verse 8. It says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root and filled the land. And the mountains were covered with its shade, and the mighty cedars with its branches. And it sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls, so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, and look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your hand had planted, for the son who you made strong for yourself. So the the psalmist is crying out to God when he sees Israel struggle, and he, he, he compares the nation of Israel to a vine, and he says, you brought us out of Egypt, and you planted us, and you tended us. The prophet Isaiah continues in Isaiah chapter 5 when he pronounces God's judgment. In verse 5 he says, and now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down and I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain, that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold outcry. We, we could go on. Ezekiel continues this. Hosea continues this. It's throughout the prophets where he depicts the people of Israel as this vine that God had planted and tended and cared for. And He planted them with the expectation, you see this, the fruit that He wanted was righteousness and justice. But instead He got injustice and He got oppression. Jeremiah 2 continues this. Jesus in Matthew 20, also in Mark and Luke, He again draws the illustration of Israel as this vine that God had planted. So what's the point of this? Like, why does God plant them where He did? The promise begins back in Genesis 12, verse 1, where God had made a promise to Abraham about what He would do. 
The promise to Abraham is this. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So I want to overview the nation of Israel. God calls Abraham, who's their forefather, and he says, here's the promise, Abraham. I'm going to have my hand of blessing upon you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to provide for you, not just so that you can enjoy it, but so that all the families, all the nations of the earth through you would be blessed. And so the promise fast forwards and God places his descendants, Israel, there in the country. And he places them there so that righteousness and Justice would be seen so that people would see the God of heaven and earth as men and women served Him and the beauty and joy that that brought to creation and they'd be drawn to it. But instead of that, the Israelites, like us, pursued the desires of their sinful hearts and instead of, of bringing forth faithful good fruit, there were wild grapes that God did not recognize. Not what He intended to plant. And so that's the promise. That ultimately through the descendants of Abraham, salvation and blessing would come to all nations. Galatians chapter 3 pinpoints all of that movement in an entire nation to one man. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us as from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is anyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. I want to pause there. You begin. You see this, right? That there's... Jesus, who's a descendant of Abraham, and that he's done something for all humanity so that the blessing might come to the Gentiles, so that the promise of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, would begin to work its way out and become a reality. To be received by faith. Verse 15, to give a human example. Brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings. Referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law that came 430 years afterwards does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance come by the law, it is no longer by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgression until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary. Now, stop with this. Now, think about what he's saying here. There was a promise that God had given to Abraham and to his offspring. And that that promise found its fulfillment in Jesus. And then he begins discussing the law and its place. He says, look, by the law, we demonstrated every other descendant of Abraham to be disqualified from receiving the promise. 
But Jesus comes and walks in perfect, sinless righteousness. And He is now given all of the promises that God had granted to Abraham. He says they weren't promises just generically for all the offspring, but to one. That Jesus has received all the promises, all the blessings. This doesn't mean that God is, is done with Israel entirely. You've got to deal honestly with what the prophets proclaim to be a coming reality for the nation of Israel returning to God. But what this does tell us is that the promises, the blessings, were given to Jesus. And we are now attached to Him through faith. In Jeremiah chapter 31, God lays out what He calls the new covenant. And it's a promise to Israel. He said, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. The covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they will be my People. Now, I want you to see this promise. It says, no longer will, will they just have the law or the commands of God here, but I'll begin to write it and etch it on their hearts. And then he says, and I love this, because the same language is repeated in Revelation 21 and 22 when God returns, when Christ returns and establishes His kingdom. It says, and I will be their God and they will be my people. It's this depiction of walking with intimacy with God. Closeness with Him. Unbroken fellowship. And He says, this is a promise. Now, we got to be honest. This is a promise to Judah. Right? This is a promise given to the people of Israel. But Galatians 3 says that that promise finds its completion, its fulfillment in Jesus. So now, Jesus is the one who has received all of these promises. All of these blessings are His. And we are close to Him. And He says He will bless us. We don't necessarily claim these promises, but what we claim is being in Christ and that He has all blessing and spiritual power and authority. And so that's what we're tapping into when we abide in Christ. It's not just that He died for our sins and rose again, which Lord knows would be more than enough for us, that we could never claim God needed to give us anything. But He doesn't stop with that. He says, draw near to me. And through that relationship, by faith in Christ, He begins to pour out blessing upon blessing upon blessing. So much so that Ephesians 1 talks about us being lavish with God's grace. Us having every spiritual blessing already given to us. I mean, look at this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in Him. Do you see how God sees us? Through the blood of Christ, He sees us as what? As holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as His sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through the blood of 
the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. That's good news. It says, through Christ and Him having all these blessings and power, all of these things at His disposal, then He in love has been pouring them out on us. I love that language of, of it being lavished on us, given without consideration to cost. Just poured out over and over again. By the fullness of His grace. To those of us who were distant from God, who were far from Him, He loved us in this way. He pursued us in this way. So when the Scriptures say, Abide in Christ. When Jesus says, stay close to me, stay connected to me, this isn't about Jesus wanting to have close followers for Himself. This is about Him throwing us a lifeline and sustaining us. And it's not simply an analogy of of vine and branches. It's, It's more than that. God is telling us that Every good and perfect thing is at Jesus' disposal to give those who are near to Him. So much so that He says, if you abide in Me and abide in My Word, if you ask My Father for anything, He'll give it to you. Significant and weighty promises that Jesus has the authority and power and riches to give. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Verse 20, the Apostle Paul says it so succinctly. He says, for all the promises of God find their yes in Him. This is why it's through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Think about this. Every promise of God in Christ is yes. Yes. Now guys, there are things that God hasn't promised us. And we want to be clear about those too. God hasn't promised that we'll all be wealthy. God hasn't promised that we'll all live to be 110 and have a, a great time doing it. God hasn't promised us that. He has promised to never, never leave or forsake us. He has promised to go before us and make a path for us. He has promised that in the midst of suffering, He will be sufficient. He'll be enough. He's actually promised that we will suffer for Him. But all of these good things that God has promised to His people in Christ find their yes and amen. And those of us who have trusted in Christ have at our disposal amazing resources to pursue life and godliness. Far beyond what we can imagine. In terms of pursuit of what God has called us to, we have a limitless bank account of God's grace and blessing. And God is is there waiting to say yes. And and, and the simple condition, it says, come abide in me. And I in you, stick close to me. Let me work on you. Let me work in you. Let me change you. And when we do that, when we begin to have a transformed heart, we begin to plead for God with those things that are consistent with His Word, God's answer becomes yes, resoundingly, over and over again. 
If you abide in Him, if you stay close to Him, God is better than you could have imagined. It doesn't mean there won't be hard days. But it's better than anything this world could offer. We, we will unpack over the next few weeks what it practically means to stay close to Him, stay near to Him. A lot of, if you're a Christian, you kind of know that intuitively a lot of times. Um, because it's not rocket science here. One of the opportunities to do that, you're going to have here in a moment, is we gather to sing praises to Him. Because God says He inhabits the praises of His people. And so when we gather with one voice singing praise to Jesus, there's there's something that we can't quite explain that the Spirit of God does in this place. He begins to stir our hearts for Him. He begins to fill us with peace and joy and the ability to just rest in what He's done for us and to celebrate it and to cease striving and attempting to earn His affection and just rejoice in what He's freely given. Let's begin with that. If you're not a Christian, it's also kind of an intuitive thing too, is that to, to, to abide in Christ, you've got to first be in Him. You've got to be connected to Him relationally in order to stay close to Him. You, you can't have a, a close and intimate relationship with someone you don't believe to exist. You can't have a close and intimate relationship with someone that you don't trust. And so for you, the call is quite simple. To place your faith in Jesus. That He is who He says He is. That He's the only Son of God who died paying the penalty for your sin, but demonstrated His victory over sin by conquering the grave and rising from the dead. And that for those of us who simply trust Him, did you hear that throughout the Scriptures? That if you heard and believed with faith, He received it by faith. It's a simple act of trusting Him. This blessing, this salvation, forgiveness for your sin, the hope of eternity with God, and His blessing and presence here and now as you walk through this newness of life is there for you. It's been extended to you. You might say, well, I don't know if God would forgive me. You're here today hearing this simple invitation to trust Him by the sovereign will of God. Like You didn't just stumble in here accidentally. You might have thought you did. You might have been looking for a different church and took a wrong turn and you ended up here. You might have been headed somewhere else and just said, I think I'll go in. Or more likely, your mom or cousin or neighbor pulled some shady trick to get you here. But right now, you are hearing a simple message that says anything, everything can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus if you will simply trust Him. And that is God who has brought you here to hear that. And that is evidence of the simple reality that He is willing. He's willing to forgive you. So wherever you come from, whether you've been a Christian for 20 years or you came here completely suspect of the whole thing, I want you to know this simple thing that every good and perfect gift comes from God and it comes through Jesus Christ. And it's only received by faith. Trusting in Him and walking with Him. I want to invite you to renew that today or to take that first step in that relationship today. 
want to ask as we wrap up things, if you have questions, I want to ask some of our elders to just kind of gather over here on this side, our pastors as well. Uh, if you have a question, you want someone to pray with you, we'd be glad to do that. So um, I want to ask you guys as the singing starts to, to slide over there and just be available. Let's pray together. Father God, we, we're blown away at your goodness to us. That you not only are willing to save us, which when I consider my sin before you, when I consider my rebellion against you, I don't understand. And that not only are you willing to proclaim me not guilty and allow me into heaven, that you then command me to draw near to you so that you can bless us. Why in the world do you, you want sinful men and women near you? I, I don't imagine. I can't understand. But to draw us near so that you can continue to lavish, lavish us with your love. You've given us every spiritual blessing. Everything we could ask or imagine from you in the heavenly places is there. If we will simply just abide in you, begin to walk with you. Father, I pray that many today would would make that decision, that your spirit would work within them in such a way that, that they would see this gift of salvation as sort of a gift that can't be rejected. It just has to be taken. It's too good to be refused. And I pray for those here today who, Lord, and I fear there are many who've known you, who've experienced salvation through your Son, but walk with a sense of emptiness. And kind of a wonder of this, is this all there is? That today, your spirit would lift them up. Would draw them near to you. So once again, receive joy in your presence. Lord, we pray that you would renew us each. That you would transform us to the image of your son. That we might be a powerful witness to the world. And that we might experience the good things that he's offered for us in victory over sin, in sacrificial giving to others. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.